So let us hear the word of God from Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. We have seen Paul here in this subsection provide for us a theological foundation for godly living. And he began this thought in verse 11 by talking about Christ's first coming. And then in verse 12, he talks about Christ uh, teaching us, instructing us, training us to say no to sin and yes to holiness. Um, And then in verse 13, Paul speaks of the end uh, to his second coming. Uh, And he's going to come with uh, the great glory of the Father and so on. So we see first coming, if you will, the intervening time of sanctification and then the second coming. And so Christ's first coming provides the basis for our life of obedience. His life, death, and obedience secures our salvation and then motivates us and enables us to be like him. But his second coming also motivates us in holiness because we want to be ready for his glorious appearing, but we also know that we will give an account to him regarding our lives as Christians. Now, as we have seen and verses uh, 11 to 13, Paul uses terms that are familiar to us, but he also uses terms that are, were familiar to the pagan culture around him. And so he is providing a stark contrast between what the unbeliever would say in regard to virtue and salvation and uh, compare that to the truth. All right, now... As we uh, look now, verse 14, let's uh, take a look at our our, uh, outline here and the the sentence structure briefly Uh, again. And we come now to verse 14, uh, but we began, of course, with the four connecting verses 1 to 10 with this section. And then the grace of God refers to Christ. He is uh, our salvation, and he has appeared, and he is now training us. So again, you see how things uh, fit together. Um, He trains us in order to do two things, right? To live in a godly way, to deny ungodliness. And while that's happening, then we are waiting for Christ's appearing, our hope uh, in that. And so now he takes the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior Jesus Christ language there, and now he uh, gives one more thought in that way. Um, And so who gave himself for us. And then notice there are two reasons why in order that he might redeem and cleanse. And then a final thought in regard to the special people, those who are zealous uh, for good works. So again, here's one of those passages where Paul is so detailed in the way he presents things that uh, breaking it down like this can be uh, helpful for us to see it. All right, so we come then to uh, verse 14, which again reads, uh, who gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Okay, so Paul began with the first coming in verse 11, goes to the second coming in verse 13. Now he goes back to the first coming uh, here in this verse. And so he starts with a very familiar way of saying things in the scriptures. God, or excuse me, Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself on our behalf. So uh, just, this is from Mark 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A, a very, if you will, basic idea for us in this way. But you notice here that um, Paul uses the language of giving. He uses the language of on behalf of here. So there's this sacrificial idea. Then he uses the term redeem. And he uses the term special people. And so as you put all that together, it sure sounds like Paul has in mind the ideas of the Passover and the Exodus. So with that in mind then, as the Passover lamb gave itself to die in the place of the firstborn, and who then covered the household with its blood, which then led, of course, to the Exodus and Israel being redeemed and set free from their bondage, um, they then go to Mount Sinai and worship and serve Yahweh as his own special people. So, in light of that, likewise, <coughs> Jesus is that lamb, that our Passover lamb, who is without blemish, and who then died in our place, and whose blood covers us. This then sets us free from our bondage to sin, and enables us to serve God in all things, because he has made us his own special people who yearn to obey him. So uh, Paul here is calling our attention back to these Old Testament types and shadows and basically is saying now this is fulfilled in Christ. So as we saw words that called attention to the first century and the ideas of polemic, here now we have these words calling us to the Old Testament and uh, showing the connections. So then, to expand just briefly, Jesus never sinned. Um, he is that lamb without spot. And Jesus then declares us to be without sin uh, because Jesus represents us, just like the lamb did, and he is obeyed in our place. This means that when God looks at us in our efforts at obedience, he does not see how we fall short, our filthy rags, uh, but he looks at Christ instead. Jesus then, of course, died on our behalf, taking the judgment that we deserve so that we do not have to face God's eternal wrath. We don't have to face that angel of death. Okay. <clears throat> so then, when we fall short in our efforts at obedience here when we don't put our hope in the Lord and we waver and we doubt um, right? God punished, has punished Jesus for our sin then Jesus blood not only paid the penalty for our sins but covers us protects us so again when God looks at us and sees our imperfections our uh, failures as older men or younger women or whatever uh, we think of here in these verses, um, hey, God doesn't strike us down because we are protected in, in Christ. 
Now Christ's work has set us free. Set us free from our enslavement to sin, not just to Pharaoh, but to sin, to death, uh, to Satan. Uh, And so we are no longer dead in our sins. So now we are able to do what God wants us to do. We are able to be faithful younger men or younger women or whatever it is. This freedom then means that we can repent for our sins to trust in Christ and Paul's emphasis here to live lives of holiness. God is no longer angry with us. We are reconciled to him through Jesus and we therefore are special to him. We are the new Israel. We are a people that belong to God. He has made us his people and he is our God. This is true not only for the Jews, but now also for the Gentiles who believe in Christ. And so because of all of this, Paul's primary point here is that we now love righteousness and hate sin. This is what ought to define us as God's people. We want to be those godly older men and women, those righteous younger women and men. We want to be faithful servants of the Lord, delighting in obedience and denouncing eagerly the things that are sinful. And so we stand in the truth. We oppose all that pretends to be true. Now, what I've said here in the last few minutes, you know, you're probably thinking, well, this is kind of, you know, Christianity 101. (laughs) These are the basics, and they are. But you see how Paul is using the basic understanding of the gospel to give us a foundation for practical everyday living. All right, now, let's break it down here in this way. Uh, As we, we started, who gave himself for us, and the reason why he gave himself for us here, Paul gives two reasons. In order that, first of all, he may redeem us or might redeem us from every lawless deed. Or one trans, or a commentator said we could translate it, every kind of sin. We are set free to say no to any and every kind of sin. Now, all of us sin Uh, in very similar ways but it's also true that each one of us here as individuals struggle with particular sins we may all struggle with the issue of pride but there are specific ways that each one of us in here struggles with that particular sin well Christ came to redeem us from that to set us free from our bondage to doing these sinful things Prior to that, we were unable to do anything that was righteous in God's sight, anything that is good. But now we've been released from that, and we can live for God. Let's turn a moment to uh, Romans chapter 6. Paul expands on this thought here, and we could easily read this whole chapter. But let's uh, begin our reading in verse 15. Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. As I've mentioned on other occasions, that certainly not is the strongest way to say no in Greek. Absolutely not. Do not think for a moment that just because you are saved by grace that you can do anything you want. That's not what grace means. That's not the conclusion. 
So he continues, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, or under sanctification, your translation may say. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin... And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, Christ didn't just come to to give us fire insurance, as some have called it, but he has come to redeem us to be holy, to be like God. All right, now the second reason, coming back here to Titus, that uh, Paul gives is that uh, Christ gave himself in order that he might purify us or cleanse us for himself, his own special people. And so Christ gave himself in order that we might be clean, that his bride might be perfected, that his people, his own special beloved people, might, you might say, be dressed in white. Christ does not want a filthy wife. He doesn't want his people to enjoy ungodly behavior. He doesn't want his loved ones to love things that are not according to the truth. He expects us to deny sin and to seek after holiness. And so, you uh, might remember some of the things that I've said here over the last several weeks in this chapter. There's no place for the, the idea that Christ can be our Savior, but not our Lord. There's no idea that we can be saved without then being righteous and holy as believers. It goes together. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, it was in the last week or two I read this passage, but here it is again. The, the, before I was basically anticipating this thought now here it is specifically and so in Ephesians 5 verse 25 husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her so note that same language that he might sanctify and here's the word cleanse her or purify her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he, uh, she should be holy and without blemish. So again, Christ is using his word this very moment as I'm preaching okay, to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us ready for his appearance, for his coming. And that we ready for that heavenly, heavenly uh, uh, wedding feast. All right, now, as we come back to Titus yet again, Uh, Notice how the verse ends. He is purifying himself uh, for himself, his own special people. And then it says, zealous for good works. 
Basically, God's people are zealots, but not zealots for political power, okay? uh, not out-of-control crazies like the radical left and most everyone in Washington, uh, but instead, God's people will go to any and every length to do things that are good in God's sight. We are zealous, eager, fully committed to this. Now, you'll notice on my my outline, I've uh, translated it here, one who is zealous. And uh, I'm trying to emphasize that Paul is saying here, every individual is to be like this. Each one of us are to have this kind of zeal for doing good things. It isn't just the, the leaders of the church. It isn't just some of us. But all of God's people, as individuals, are to be zealous for things that are good. And so the point here, again, is pretty straightforward. This is, uh, if you will, um, Christianity 101. God's grace to us in Christ motivates us to live godly lives. And so as he ends here uh, this verse, as Christians, we are not to say, well, God has saved me, so it doesn't matter what I do. Now, we are to be filled with devotion and enthusiasm and zeal for holiness. We are not to say, well, you know, my sins are forgiven, so it doesn't matter that I'm going to sin in this particular way because my sins are forgiven anyway. That's not the mindset that we should have, right? That's certainly not idea. No, the work of Christ, the grace that we have been shown gives us the basis for holiness. We are new creations now. We are transformed to be like Adam and Eve were designed to be from the beginning. And to put it another way, we now are the new Israel. With Paul using these terms here for people in Crete, Gentiles, you see how he is saying then that we are new Israelites. So let's read a few passages here to flesh out a little bit what Paul is saying. Let's turn first to Exodus chapter 19. This language of um, give and redeem and special people takes us back to the book of Exodus. And I've already made reference to the Passover and such. So now look in chapter 19. And in verse 5 he says, uh, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which shall speak to the children of Israel. And now we could look at other passages that say this. Uh, we will look at one, um, but uh, you can think of Deuteronomy 7. I read that passage here uh, recently. I believe it was in our study of Romans. Uh, says same things. Okay, we are God's special people. So let's turn then to 1 Peter chapter 2. For it's not just Paul that says this. Not just Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, but Peter, the apostle to the Jews, if you will. And even here in 1 Peter, there's uh, a rather um, careful debate. Is Paul writing, or excuse me, is Peter writing to Gentiles in this letter? And uh, it may very well be the case. Uh, I lean in that direction. And, and so anyway, notice in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 
But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So note the connections with uh, Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Remember, uh, when we looked at this, verse 10 uh, is connected to Hosea 1 and 2. Um, so here's Peter saying, these terms, these, these uh, identity markers, if you will, for Israel now are applied to the New Testament church. And so uh, we are these new creatures, these new creations, the new Israel. Let's turn then to Ezekiel uh, and chapter 36. Um, the commentators were universal in their connection with this passage. And uh, as I read some of this, you can see why. This, this language of cleansing is uh, uh, that Paul uses is used here. And he likely had this, this passage in mind. And in Ezekiel 36, uh, again, we could read much here. Let's pick up in verse 25. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your uh, um, your trees and increase the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Now for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded in your own ways, O house of Israel. If you go back to verse 22, um, he says, I'm doing this for my name's sake. So God has saved us for his own glory ultimately, and he has saved us in order that we might be cleaned. The Spirit has given us a new heart and um, is sanctifying us. So one more passage here. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 26. So a little bit ago, we could turn to Deuteronomy 7 again, uh, but here's one. In Deuteronomy 26, uh, beginning of verse 16, it says, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise and name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So God is telling Israel, be holy because I have made you my people. Now, Paul is saying the same thing. You are now the people of God through Jesus Christ, even though you're Gentiles, and so be holy. And 
all these different ways that we've seen in chapter 2. Okay. And so, um, again, this is kind of a basic message for us here, but this is the point that Paul is driving at in these verses. And so uh, we could summarize it then in this way. Live according to the two comings of Christ. Maybe a, a summary proposition from uh, these four verses. Okay? Live according to the two comings of Christ. In the first coming, he has accomplished salvation. So now we can live a holy life. And because we need to be ready for a second coming, we must live a holy life. All right. So um, here is the culmination of his thought of this extended sentence here in verses 11 to 14. All right. Well, with all that in mind, then, verse 15 brings it all together. Hey, he, in verses 2 to 14, you might say all are one extended thought. And then verses 1 and 15 bracket it all. So verse 15, Paul is saying to Titus, speak these things. These are are you singular commands, right? Speak these things, Titus. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Notice there are four commands there. And then if you look back at verse 1, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So he began the chapter with this command to speak, and now he ends with it. And all along then, uh, Titus is to be teaching, instructing in the ways of holiness. Okay? And so notice the book ends here. Um, so as we look at verse 15, when Paul says, speak these things, because of the connection with verse 1, obviously Paul is chapter 2 primarily in mind. Though certainly we could talk about the whole of the letter. He especially has uh, chapter 2 uh, in his focus. So then secondly, he says, um, exhort. Hey, we're not just speaking, uh, Titus, we're exhorting. You must exhort them. You could translate it as urge or appeal. But you might say it has more of a positive focus. We can translate the word as encourage or even come alongside. So there's more of this this, uh, positive, encouraging kind of sense here to this word for exhort. Uh, The word was used in verse 6, you recall, there with the young men, and then assumed in uh, verse 9. Now the third command that he gives is the word rebuke. This is more, uh, if you will, in your face. This isn't, you know, putting your arm around someone. This is getting in their face and rebuking them. Uh, reproving them, directly challenging people. And so for those who say, hey, the gospel-centered idea is what we need to talk about. Okay? If you talk about sanctification, then you're just being a legalist. Well, Paul's saying, more or less, get in their face and challenge them about that idea. That's not the right way of thinking. And of course, This isn't just out there. This is what we've heard in the PCA for the last 20 years, especially. And so expose this teaching. Expose this viewpoint. Convict them. Rebuke them. And then notice how he adds the the phrase here, with all authority. 
Titus has been sent by Paul with the authority of the apostle himself. As we've talked about, Titus is an apostolic delegate, right? He's delegated with the authority of the apostle. And so Titus, do not hesitate. Hey, might be easy to stand and speak. Might even be rather easy to exhort and urge and appeal. It might be a bit challenging to rebuke those who say differently. Hey, but don't hesitate. Hey, and so Titus uh, must keep this in mind. But notice, of course, Paul is not just writing this letter to Titus. He's writing it to the believers in Crete. And so Cretans, listen to Titus. I have given him this authority to speak these things. Now, as I've said here in this letter, and even as we've studied uh, in Romans, we are not apostles. We have not been delegated with apostolic authority. But nevertheless, we all have this same responsibility, maybe to a less official sense. Uh, Church leaders maybe have the most direct connection here in this way. But uh, we too must speak the truth. We must exhort as to what is true and rebuke those who say differently. We have been given this authority, especially those of us who are ordained. We have been given this authority by God to teach sound doctrine and sound living and oppose those who teach differently. But for all of us, declare the truth. Declare it to your children, declare it to the people that you work with and so forth. Encourage those, come alongside those who accept it, and reprove those who don't. Now, each three of these commands show a continuous action. So, again, Paul's not just talking about a one-time thing that you do, say, when you go through the process of ordination. (laughs) Not just something that you do even on a Sunday, But this is a continuous action. We should regularly do these things. All right, let me read here a moment from, uh, this is Dr. Richards in his background commentary. And um, just to give a little bit of context, he is developing this thought of teaching. And he, he points out the different words used for teaching. And we have three of them right here in this verse. And so that's his focal point. And so listen to how he puts this. When we integrate all these different terms and concepts into our notion of teaching, we find the concept is far broader than is generally recognized in our society. First, a teaching ministry is one of shaping lives, not simply of passing on information, even true information. Secondly, Christian teaching deals with every aspect of our lives. The tasks and tensions of daily life, relationships with others, all concern, uh, all our concerns on which Christian teaching must focus. So, right? The, think especially of the older women with the younger women, but all of that. Uh, and then thirdly, we must conclude that teaching is a challenging task, which actively involves the teacher with the learner in a relationship, which includes instructing modeling, encouraging, advising, urging, exhorting, guiding, exposing, and convicting. And those last terms are uh, ways we can translate all these different terms in this passage. And then he says this, If we are to take Paul's portrait of Christian teaching seriously, 
We need to rethink many aspects of our contemporary church life. We need to take the relational far more seriously. For effective communication of a life that is in accord with sound doctrine requires more than speaking to a passive audience on Sunday, whether in a pew or classroom. We need settings in which lives can be shared, the lived meaning of Christian truths explored, and together we can support one another as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. So, the teaching of the truth, in some ways, is most effective when we spend time with each other. That's basically what he's saying here. Paul had done it with Titus. Titus, in turn, is to do it with the believers in Crete. This is what we should be doing as parents. This is what we should be doing, older men with the younger men, older women with the younger women. Having a Bible study is fine. Those things are good. But let's do more of a, if you will, mentor relationship and, uh, and teach in that way. So anyway, the uh, thought that he has developed in his commentary, I thought it was uh, an important one here for us. All right, as always, there's so much to say, but let's look now at the final command that Paul gives here. Let no one despise you. The word here for despise means to look down upon or to disdain or even to disregard now, certainly, this can be true for the false teachers, right? Chapter 1, verses 9 to 16. Let no one treat your message as unworthy or as foolish. Remember what we saw in verse 8, hey, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Let, don't let anybody talk down and uh, look down upon you because of what you're saying. Um, if you turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul had said the same thing to Timothy, his other apostolic delegate. <clears throat> and in verse 12, 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit and faith and purity. So he's using the same word there, despise, the same ideas as uh, he is speaking here to Titus. Now, notice the difference, though. Uh, Paul doesn't mention Titus's age like he did with Timothy, which suggests to us that, that Titus was older than Timothy. Uh, if Timothy was in his 30s by uh, this time, then Titus might be 40 or older or something like that. Now, <clears throat> back to the point here. Let no one despise you. Okay? People despise Paul, too. Uh, this is not anything unusual. The world despises all who speak the truth. And there are many in the church that despises, that despise those who speak the truth. They will use any excuse to ignore it. They'll use age. They'll use how somebody looks, the sound of their voice. You name it. They'll use any reason to despise and look down upon those who are proclaiming the truth. And so Paul commands us here, Titus, and now extension to us, don't let him get to you. Continue to speak the truth. Urge people, exhort people, and uh, to contradict those who say differently. 
Don't make the truth about yourself. Focus everybody's attention on what is true. And so ignore their efforts to despise and focus on what God has given us. So, um, right, first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, Christ giving himself so that we can be holy, among other things. So anyway, um, <clears throat> here are a few thoughts for these final two verses and this subsection. And so uh, after a return from uh, Nathaniel's graduation next week and such, we will uh, jump into, well, actually, I think we have Mother's Day the week after, don't we? So whenever we come back, we'll, <laughs> we'll jump into chapter 3 um, and look at Paul's final words here. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that... Uh, you have given us your word, and um, in fact, we don't have to be uh, overly creative and, and finding some secret truths and so forth. The basic message is so relevant for us, and we thank you for this message uh, that Paul has given, that Christ has come to give himself for us, to redeem us, yes, from your wrath and judgment, but also to redeem us unto holiness. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for this, and we do pray, then, that you would uh, equip us and strengthen us, as we've been reminded of, of uh, how we are special to you. May this motivate us, then, to, to live in ways that please you. Um, may we uh, keep the, the future in mind and uh, the past in mind, that we might honor you in all things. Uh, Lord, we also, then, uh, ask and pray that you would help us to be effective teachers, whether it's in a, some kind of formal sense or, or not. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us then, that, that we would not be uh, ashamed as we talked about this morning, that we would not be discouraged by those who may despise us, uh, but may we speak the truth, this truth of justification and sanctification, of salvation and holiness. And uh, we pray for your enabling in this way. Help us in, in our um, uh, more formal contexts like here at church, but also the more informal ones as we relate to one another, uh, that uh, you would grow us in godliness, that we then would uh, put to shame those who would uh, despise us uh, for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.